Duty series. We've been taking a look at the life of King David, and we began on Father's Day, which I would say the story that we looked at out of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is probably the highlight of David's career, like his, his relationship with God. The pinnacle of the moment happened when David wanted to build God a house or a temple, and God flipped that around and said, oh no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build for you a dynasty, meaning that there will always be a descendant from you sitting on your throne. And the covenant and the promise is forever. It's just this amazing moment where God enters into covenant with King David. And the question then is, why King David? Like, what was it about David that made God look down from heaven to the earth and say, I'm going to choose him, I'm going to pick him to be the leader of my people and to enter into this sort of covenant. Because I don't think it was haphazard. I don't think it was a flip of the coin. I don't think it was an accident. I think that David had, since he was a, a little boy, certain characteristics and qualities in his heart and his mind that made God say, him. I pick and choose him. In fact, we know at the end of David's life, when everything was said and done, it tells us in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that God is able to say about David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. And don't we want God to say it about us? I mean, isn't that our dream for some? I want God to someday to say, to look down from heaven and say, I have found Sam, son of Chuck, a man, I mean, he can skip the Chuck part if he wants, but a man after my own heart. I know he will do everything that I need him to do. And so we looked at the next week is, I think one of the characteristics that David had was faith, just this amazing faith. And I don't mean like David mentally assents that there's a God and he exists, but I mean a faith that moved David into action over and over again and great loyalty, like don't talk about God negatively in front of David. He is loyal to God. He trusts God. And this is the story that we looked at in terms of the giant Goliath and David then defeating Goliath. It's an act of great faith, and that is a common thread throughout David's life. Last week, we talked about David always acts in honor. Honor is a huge deal for David, treating others in honor and treating God in honor, even when the situation and context doesn't really justify it. Like we looked at a few stories when King Saul was always trying to kill David, David over and over again refuses to act in any way that's not honorable. Does Saul deserve respect? Nope. And what we looked at last week is there's a big difference between respect and honor. Respect is something that is earned. And, and sometimes you have people in your life that they have earned your respect because of the quality of their life, the things that they've said, the things they've done. You respect them. But honor, that's freely given. And so you might not like your boss, and you might not respect your boss at all. And maybe it's justified, but you could still walk into the office tomorrow and honor your boss because that's on you. And you might not like your ex-husband or your ex-wife at all. And maybe there's things in their life that has not earned your respect, but you can still act honorably towards them because that's on you. And what we see in David is he will always act in honor. I think that's one of the threads throughout David's life that causes God to look down from heaven and say, I can trust him with the things of my kingdom. Now, growing up, I don't know if you're a teacher, you'll have a greater appreciation for that, but I was always one of those students in the classroom who had a hard time listening and following to directions, the instructions. Now, I know for some of you that's not a big surprise or shock to you. By way of personality, I tend to be more impetuous, meaning I just like to rush right into it and, and do something. I'm sort of impulsive like that. Some people, like some of you I know, are you're far more thoughtful, you're more deliberate, you're kind of restrained, you want to take time to process. Not me, I'm ready just to move forward. Like in a spelling bee, you have the option to say, could you use that word in a sentence? Could you define that word? Not me, before they get the word out, I'm ready just to go on, let's spell that thing. That's kind of how I was. And so 
I find great comfort in the Apostle Peter because the little snippets I read about his personality, it looks to me like he has the problem of talking before he thinks and kind of gets himself in trouble. And so the elders often have to remind me, you know, you don't have to say everything that comes to your mind. You can hold some thoughts and plans closer to the chest. So, you know, that talk, 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 talk spirit, I, I have that. And genetically, like, if you know my parents, you get that I probably got it from my dad. You know, he's just talking. I'm just kidding. That's nothing like my dad. I, I know where I get it. But the second reason why I was a student had a hard time, really, it wasn't rebellion. I wasn't trying to be a rebellious student, but I probably had a little ADD. I probably had a lot of ADD. And when the teacher was trying to explain the directions, I was easily distracted to want to move on, or most likely a funny thought or comment came to my head that I thought the class would be blessed if they got to hear, and that was kind of where I was. But here's the real honest truth of why it was hard for me to follow instructions and directions is because I was in a competition to beat Lynn, uh, Liz Bancroft in turning my paper in first. Liz was smart. She could whip out math problems or English sentences or time charts faster than anyone I could, that I'd met. But in the first grade, Liz Bancroft was a girl, and I couldn't let Liz Bancroft beat me. Now, she's gone on to be a lawyer and a prosecutor, and she's successful, blah, blah, blah. But in the first grade, <laughs> but in the first grade at Monroe over here, when I had Mrs. Fishburn, as soon as they handed you that mimeographed worksheet, and I'm aging myself, but how many remember the mimeographed sheets, right? The Kind of the purplish color, they were like... Twenties and like, what are you talking about, dude? It was like it had this chemical smell. You could just get high in the classroom just by smelling it. And, but as soon as that mimeograph sheet hit my desk, it was on, and I was in a race to beat Liz Bancroft. And if I saw her wrapping up her work, I would just start making up answers to beat her. So I had a hard time following directions. In fact, I saw on the internet a test that a teacher gets a three-minute test that she hands out to her students to see whether they can follow the directions. Here's, I know you can't really read that. Let me read you some of the things that are on. Number one is just this, and very important. Read everything before you do anything. You got it? That's the be, Read everything. We can go through the whole test. Read everything before you do anything. Well, too late. I'm already gone, right? I'm off to number two, which says put your name in the upper right-hand corner of this page. And so that's what I'm doing, right? I'm just moving on, writing my name in the upper right-hand corner. Number three says circle the word name in sentence two. So I would go and circle name in the sentence number two. And it just keeps going on with little activities. You have to do this, do that. Number 14 is loudly call out your first name when you reach this point in the test. So I'd be like, Sam! I'm real proud because, like, I'm the first one here. Liz didn't get to get there first. Number 15 is, if you think you have carefully followed these directions, tell a partner, I have followed carefully these directions. You move on to number 17. It says, count out in your normal speaking voice from 1 to 10. So I had to sign up my desk, 1, 2, 3. Number 18, if you were the first person to get this far, write your name on the board. I'm beating Liz. I mean, my name's on the board. And then finally you get to the very end of the test. Here's the last thing. Number 20, last thing. Now that you have finished reading carefully, do only numbers one and two. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) This is a little embarrassing. Now, okay, what does this have to do with the spiritual life? Here's what this has to do with the spiritual life. What What I recognize in my life is the ability to wait on the Lord and to inquire of the Lord are spiritual disciplines that take effort for me. Like the ability to wait on the Lord or to inquire of the Lord are spiritual disciplines that take effort, at least for me. Now, I know some of you are great at it. Like you just 
patiently labor in prayer, waiting on God and His timing, and you can sit in a super monk-like state, meditating on the goodness of God, losing sense of all time as you wait on God's move. The pond that is your life is smooth and peaceful, but me, I need God to answer me back within 30 seconds, or I'm going to get distracted by something shiny in my office. That's the way it is for me. And some of you I mean, you're always talking to God about it. I mean, even the smallest things, you're just in continual conversation with God, inquiring from God all the time. Like, you're not even going to pull out of the parking lot this morning without first asking God which direction you should go to. Like, you'll be at the supermarket needing toilet paper, and you won't just buy Charmin or Quilted Northern without first asking, should you go for the two-ply or the three-ply soft and strong? Me, I'm going right for the Cottonelle because it is the best. And what I've discovered is I have to put things in my life to help me with the discipline of waiting and inquiring of the Lord. So I have a morning routine that has to have certain spiritual disciplines included to help me do what does not naturally and most instinctively come for me. That I just don't, in fact, that's what a spiritual discipline is. A spiritual discipline is to do something that trains you and helps you to do the things that you don't really naturally or instinctively do. And in this area of my life, I've recognized I don't think I just instinctively and naturally flow with just waiting on the Lord or inquiring of the Lord. Every month I have to schedule time to go to a retreat center overnight to cut myself off from as many distractions as I can to enter into those disciplines like prayer and solitude and silence and fasting and meditation because they don't come naturally for me. I've learned I have to do these. Now, I think all this is important because these things are the undergirding foundations of a key aspect of David's life that I think are one of the reasons why God will say from heaven about David, I pick him. He has my heart, and I know he'll do everything that I need him to do. So when you read through the life of David, when you do a study in the life of David, one of those threads that go along almost every story is David's obedience. What you'll see is David obeys God. Obedience to the Lord will be a key characteristic of David throughout his life. It will be one of those foundational qualities that allows God to invest in him with such leadership of his people. It will be, so for just a moment, let me define you what I mean by, or at least to illustrate what I mean by obedience. And some of you get this with your kids. Like, I I don't mean like David's obedience, like God gives him a list of things to do, and he's going, all right, God, I did this, I did this. I mean, like, at the very heart, David, by way of obedience, is very sensitive to the heart and mind of God. And so when I mean obedient, I mean that there's a sensitivity to care about what God cares about. That what's important to God becomes important to me. That what He values is what I want to value. That how He sees things is how I want to see things. And this seems to be a part of David's life. He's obedient, not in just some sort of check-off obligation way, but he's obedient in the sense that his heart beats like God's beats. What matters to him matters to David. What he values, David values. And this is important because sometimes this is a real discipline that needs to be cultivated because if you get motivated by beating Elizabeth Bancroft, the first question that comes to your mind will probably not be, what does God want in this? Or if you get motivated by something like when fear hits your life or insecurity or concern for your future or even if it's the motivations to stop a particular negative feeling like loneliness or boredom or stress, it's quite possible the first question or concern might not be, what does God think in all of this? What does He want from me in all of this? And I think this in the bottom line is what obedience is all about. Obedience is the desire to want to please God. It's motivated by a desire that 
I want, I want God to think well of me. And the idea that God would ever be disappointed or that I would ever grieve his heart, it bothers me. Now, I know, again, for some, this is easier than others, right? Some of you have a, a people-pleasing personality, right? You know that about yourself yet yeah, that you know, no, I can't. The idea of somebody being upset with me really hurts me and bothers me. Like, you are a, a people-pleaser. I see this in my kids. Like, some of my kids, they have a people-pleasing personality where they, they hate the idea of you being upset with them. Like, that really bothers them. And then I have other kids who, if you're upset, he thinks to himself, eh, you'll get over it. I mean, that's kind of, so we kind of see that in terms of our kids. And that's personality and temperament. Sometimes the way it works with God. But obedience, what I recognize, it's not really a value that we elevate by way of the, what we're drinking here in our society and our culture. We value things like independence and free thinking and being a free spirit. It's been years since I've had a bride say to me during her wedding vows, she wanted me to say, I love and obey. Like, it's been years. Like, no, we don't do that anymore around here. And what I also recognize is that, at least for me, I have enough of what the New Testament calls the flesh. And when the Bible says the flesh, it doesn't mean like your bones and your skin and your muscle tissue. It means that inner bent away from God. Like, we each have this, there's this flesh that's in us that as soon as we find out that there's a command, there's something in us that goes, well, I don't want to do that. I want to go do this instead because we're creatures of the fall and we feel its effects. And so we say things to ourselves like, I mean, I know that's what God's word says, but I mean, when you really look at the particulars of my situation, then it's pretty clear that I'm the exception. I mean, I mean, the whole world, I know they should keep following what the Bible says, but my particular case really is the exception. Or we say things like, I mean, I know God doesn't want this in my life, but it feels really good. Or Sometimes, even in a real crafty way, we do the, you know, but God, he really is loving. He's very great. I mean, I think in the end, he really will forgive me anyhow, so what's the big deal? Or we just say things like, well, it's just once, or I mean, I'm not ever going to do it again, or this is just a temporary situation. I mean, we're probably going to get married anyhow, or whatever else it is that you say to yourself. And what I'd say, though, from Jesus is, oh, no, obedience. This is not like our intent of the heart. Obedience isn't like a propositional statement. It isn't like even a thought. What obedience for Jesus, it's always action. In the end for Jesus, action is always the key in regards to obedience. And so here's what he says in some of his teachings in John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus just says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is an action thing. This is an obedience thing. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Or here's a hard one in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this in verse 21. Listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those, the ones who do the will of my Father. You hear that? I mean, that's an action thing. It's not like, I don't care what your intent is or what your, I mean, it's, in the end, it's the ones that they do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so many will on that day say, Lord, Lord, I mean, did we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I tell you that plainly, I will say, I never knew them. Away from me, you evil, evil doer. Then he goes on, he tells that story about the guy who builds his house on rock versus the sand and the rain's coming. In the end, what Jesus is trying to say is, it's what we do with the teachings and obedience is what matters. And whether, sometimes this happens in whether we like the commandment or not. I mean, do you know, I mean, there really are some of God's commands, you know, I really don't like them. Like, I just don't like it. I don't care for it. Like, like if I'm God for a day, we will not have this command anymore. That's the way, right? And you know, there's some commands of God that I don't even really get. I don't, I mean, I read it and I go, Really? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And see, obedience is how do you keep moving forward even if at the moment the command you either don't like or you don't understand it. 
Now, we get this as parents with your kids, right? Because when you've got little kids and you tell them not to do something, I don't care whether they understand it or not. I don't want them, like, I don't care if you understand. The reason why I don't want you after midnight walking down a back alley on Dubell Street, I don't want you doing that. Like, I don't care whether you understand that or get that or not. And what you hope is they grow up and they go, oh, you know what, Dad really was smart, now I get that. And sometimes that works with God. There are things that you might not like or you don't understand that when you start to get some life experience, when you get some things going on in your life, you can now look back and go, Oh, that must have been the reason why God didn't want that in my life, because it ends like this, and this is not good, that there's an abundant life he's calling me to, and it doesn't come through this path. Now, obedience, in the end, just recognizes God is God, and we are not, and that's why we yield to him even in our questions or preferences, and I'll be the first one to acknowledge this is a difficult thing. Now, for some, and this isn't really what the sermon's about, I, I, some of this is those who are just an open and knowing rebellion. And what I mean by that rebellion is, you know what you're doing is wrong. You know God is not calling you to this, but you've decided that this is what you're going to do anyhow. And, like, there's a whole sermon I could speak on this. This isn't what this one's really about. Let me just say this. Like, we all have a tendency to justify open rebellion. We, we have a, a host of excuses or rationales that play in our mind to soothe our consciences. And, and here's what I'd say even about the story of David. You know this is what happened to King Saul, right? Like, why did God reject King Saul and put his favor on King David? It was because King Saul moved into open rebellion. God said very specifically, I want you to do this, and Saul went and did his own thing. And in the story, what God says to Saul is, I want you to destroy the Amalekites and everything of the Amalekites. Don't take anything as plunder. And when Saul went into it, he decided, well, I mean, they look really good. So here's the story. It's in 1 Samuel 15, verse 9. It says, but Saul and the army spared Agag, which is a terrible name, but that's the king here, Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed that. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and listen to what God says in verse 11. This is, ooh, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel, the prophet, was so angry, I mean, he couldn't sleep at all that night. He just cried out to the Lord all night. And then a couple of verses later, verse 13, when Samuel then, he goes to see Saul, and Saul says, hey, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, oh, yeah? Well, then how come I hear sheep? How come I hear cows? And Saul answered back, well, I mean, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle, look at the justification, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Well, go, okay, go tell, tell me. So Samuel says this. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you wipe them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. I mean, I went on the mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. And yeah, the soldiers took some sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was to be devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But here's what Samuel says back. Listen to this. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
To which case Saul then says back to Samuel, I've sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions, and now here's, the real re- here's what really happened. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. See, first he tried to justify it spiritually. Oh, we were just good. We brought it back for sacrifices to God. But in the end, the truth comes out here. Actually, when we got out there, the men wanted to keep it, and I was afraid of them, so I gave in. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. So it's interesting. You can say that spiritual spin to justify everything. We do that sometimes ourselves. You know, I mean, I don't think the Lord would have brought us together if he didn't really want us to be together. I mean, or we say things like, I mean, I think God wants me to be happy. I think he, he really wants to be, and I've, I've never been ha- more happy in my life. And so we tend to kind of justify things. So here's all I'm saying about that. Open rebellion towards God is not a good idea. And we should be sensitive to our ability to move in that direction with greater ease and probably frequency than we care to admit. But it's this that causes God to say about King Saul, that he doesn't have my heart. And I can't trust him to do everything I need him to do. And that mantle moves over to David, who has a different heart. And because of his obedience, God can say, I can trust him to do what I need him to do. Now let me give you two things of why I think David is obedient. So we'll close with this. Two things of why I think David is obedient in all things. One is, David has figured out how to wait on the Lord. So the first is, waiting on the Lord. Now, in the narrative of David's story, it won't say often or refer to David as waiting on the Lord, but the story itself describes David sometimes waiting on the Lord for a very long time. In fact, it starts very early on. Remember when the prophet Samuel comes and anoints King uh, David as the next king of Israel? Remember that story? He's just a little boy. You know what happens to David next? Like, David doesn't get to be the vice president for a little while and hang out. I mean, David has to go back into the fields as a shepherd. Could you imagine having this coronation ceremony where you're anointed the next king of Israel and you've got to go back out with the sheep? And most scholars think when you add up the stories in the timeline, he's out there for 15 years waiting on the Lord. 15 years. Like, we're going back to 1998. Remember what you were doing in 1998? Like, that's how long it has been. And in it, what you begin to see, I mean, it's... For me, I'm thinking two weeks tops, right? All right, God, we need to give King Saul his two-week notice. I get that. But 15 years? I mean, like by the end of year one, I'm talking to the sheep. You know who I am? <laughs> I'm the next king of Israel. <laughs> no one knows it but you, man. I mean, that's like, that's all we got. But this is the training ground for David to learn how to wait on the Lord because this will be key in his administration. And remember when King Saul's chasing him everywhere? He's got to wait on the Lord. Like he's living in caves sometimes for a long period of time. What's he doing? He's waiting on the Lord. And when finally King Saul dies, he goes to Judah and he's anointed king there, but he's not anointed king over all of Israel just yet. And what has he got to do? He's got to wait on the Lord. And then later when his son Absalom overthrows him and he's on the run again, what's he have to do? He's got to wait on the Lord. What you see is over and over again when he's got military campaigns against the Philistines, he's waiting on the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. For most people, waiting on the Lord is miserable. It just is. Nobody likes waiting, right? I mean, we don't like waiting in traffic. We don't, want to like, we don't like waiting in lines at the grocery store. Like, don't you do what I, I mean? I'm picking the line that goes the fastest, and as soon as I get in, it feels like everything else goes faster around. You're like, oh, I mean, I picked the wrong one. Like, I know because your Facebooks, you don't like waiting at the doctor's office, even though they told you it's a waiting room. I mean, they didn't, it's like advance notice. You're going to be waiting, but we still don't like it. We don't like the whole aspect of waiting, and I don't think it's any different with God. If you're like me, your attention span lasts about 30 seconds. I ask God a question. I need a response. If I don't hear in 30 seconds, it's, all right, then be that way. I mean, if you're not going to answer me, 
But what you'll see in the Psalms, now, it might not be in the text of Samuel, but when you get to the Psalms, many of them that David wrote, you'll see this over and over again. Let me read you some of these Psalms that David writes. Now, here's what I'd say. Anytime I read a Psalm, like, my, my guess is that this Psalm is probably for you. There's something going on in your life, or your, even this past week where, oh, that's my Psalm. And I might read another Psalm, and you'll be like, nope, <laughs> that's not me. But two months from now, you might go back to it, and you go, this is my psalm. So read this. Some of these might be exactly where you're at right now. But here's what David will write in Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Now, see, this is a discipline to do this. And most of us find this very difficult. Or Psalm 40, verses 1 to 4, David will write this. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of that slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. May Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Or Psalm 37, verses 34 to 40, he, he says, I will wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land, and when the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace, but all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let me give you one more, just a brief one, one more. Psalm 130, David will say, verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. Which, that's a big statement, right? My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. So he says, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Because what I've seen in my own life is that moment impatience with God hits, I'm going to tend to move in my own direction. I'm going to do what I think. All right, God, if you're not going to answer me, then uh, best I could tell, this is where I need to go. And so when you need to get a, it's that feeling of, you know, when you're trying to text your, your spouse or your kids on the phone and they're not responding? You know that feeling? And you're getting irritated. At first it's like you're just irritated. Why aren't they responding? And then over some time when they haven't responded, you start to get a little worried. You start to get that nervous. Like, sometimes that's a feeling with God. Like, no, God, I, really, I need you to respond. And he's not answering. And in that anxiety, sometimes we have a temptation to take things into our own hands. So like, this happens relationally. If the anxiety that you might be alone the rest of your life hits, you'll find it will be difficult to wait on the Lord for his answer. And you want to take, the, all right, God, then I'm going to take this into my own hands. Or we do this in regards to work decisions, like, well, if I don't take this promotion now, maybe this opportunity won't come my way again, and we become impatient with God, and rather than waiting on Him for His answer, we go ahead and, I'm going for it. We pick up our family and we move away, disrupting maybe everything that God was doing in our life, even for His kingdom work right here and now. So how do we calm ourselves and settle into a trusting and faithful position that can wait on the Lord in His timing? Because I would say sometimes our biggest blunders aren't so much about our out-and-out rebellion of God. It isn't like it's just, you know, forget you, God, I'm going to do my own thing. Oftentimes it's just we didn't have the patience to wait on God. We try to take things into our own hands, and we moved in a direction that God wasn't calling us to because we were unable to wait. 
We took up something that later became overwhelming and exhausting to us, not because we thumbed our nose at God but, and said, I don't, I'm going to do my own thing, but because we lacked the ability to pause for a moment and wait for him to reply, for him to say, I'm not calling you to that. And yes, I know it's a good cause or a great endeavor, but I'm not calling you to it. Thus, you don't have the grace necessary to endure it. Now, that's the first thing. Note that David is able to wait on the Lord, and I think that's one of the reasons why he can be obedient to God. Let me give you the second thing here. He's always inquiring of the Lord. He's always, before he does anything, he asks God, like, should I do this? Like, he's, the text will say often, David inquired of the Lord. And because of time, I won't read all these to you, but in 1 Samuel chapter 23, David is on the run from King Saul, and while he's running, the Philistines, you know, the great enemy of God, they come and they attack an Israelite city named Keilah. And David with his men, he needs to know, should we go rescue them? Like, should we help them? Should we save them? And so what it says in verse 2 is he says, and he inquired of the Lord. He asked, shall I go, should I attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him, yes, go attack the Philistines. So David goes back and tells his men, no, I inquired of the Lord. He told us to go do this. They kind of freak out, are you sure? So David goes back and inquires again, and God says, yes, go, I want you to go. And then David says, okay, but when this is all done, will the people that I rescue Betray me into the hands of Saul? And God says, yes, they will. Meaning, go ahead and go rescue them, but don't stick around because they will hand you over to Saul. Now, wouldn't that be good to know? Like, think about all the times in your life, if you would have asked first, that, like that last person that you hired, that it would have been good to inquire of the Lord before you actually hired them. You know that, that business proposition that you were getting involved in with your brother-in-law? I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? Wouldn't it have been good to have inquired with the Lord first? before actually getting involved and now seeing all the things that took place? It's, it is David's ability to, before he moves into that direction, inquires of the Lord. See, how does David know these things? He asks. So there's another situation where David and his men are on a military campaign, and while they're out, the Amalekites come and they conquer the town of Ziklag, which is where all of David's uh, wives and children, all of his men's wives, their families are there in that city. So when they come back, they see that the city was destroyed and what had been carried off are all of their wives, all of their children, and all of their, all of their livestock, gone. Like, gone. like David lost his wives and his children. And so everyone is heartbroken and they're weeping. And it says even that David's loyal men wanted to stone David. Like they're loyal to David, but they're so heartbroken, they're ready to stone him. And so it says, David inquires of the Lord, should we go after them to go get our wives and children back? And God says, yes, go get them. And so they do. And you'll see over and over again, when King Saul dies, all of a sudden David needs to know, what should I do in this situation? And it says in 2 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 4, that David inquired of the Lord. And God told him exactly what to do. And when David was king, there was a famine in the land for three years, and no one could figure it out. Why has there been a famine for so long? And so it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, that David inquired of the Lord. You'll see this as a pattern. Over and over again, David inquires of the Lord. Now, I said to say this. You would think that asking God would be easy, and everyone would do it, just naturally, initially, and instinctively. But that isn't my experience. Most people don't inquire of the Lord. What they do is... They make up their own mind, move in that direction, and then later ask God for a blessing. Most people don't start by inquiring of the Lord, what do you want from me? They make up their own mind, they move in that direction, in the end, they ask God to bless it. And asking God to bless them that you've already decided you're going to do and inquiring Him are two totally different things. A post-decision blessing from God is not the same thing as having the discipline to ask God before you've already decided what you are going to do. And I, I mean, I, I get it. 
Like, as soon as your heart and mind wants to be in this relationship, like you've already decided, I'm moving in this direction, and then we, then we pray, the, oh, dear God, and please bless this relationship, and I hope you put everything together again as it's supposed to be, rather than beginning with inquiring of God, should I even move in this direction? Or your heart and mind wants to make this big financial purchase, and so you've already decided to do so, and you're moving in that direction, and then we pray, God, and would you please bless this decision I've already made, this huge financial obligation and debt that now comes with it rather than asking God first an inquiry. Because I don't know about you, but here's what I've noticed in my own life. When I've committed my heart to something, and I've set my mind to something, my spiritual ears close very quickly, and I'm unable to hear the voice of the Lord very much. That's, just, that's been my experience. Like when, I've already, when Sam has already decided this is what I want to do, this is the direction I'm going, I find my spiritual ears close very quickly the ability to hear the voice of the Lord. And I, I'll dismiss warning signs. God will send me prophets in the form of friends and family who really do love me, like who really want what's best for me. And I mean, I'll just wash over red flags that are waving right in front of me. I mean, because I've already decided. And David has this ability to not move in that direction, but rather first inquire of the Lord. It's difficult when you realize that you know, sometimes the heart wants what the heart wants. And that's a very difficult truth when you recognize, I think I've been living in that. Now, that's not in the Bible. It's just sort of the thing that we recognize in life. Yeah, when the heart wants something, the heart wants it. And sometimes it's irregardless of what God might want for us. The last thing we consider is maybe God is speaking back a no. I would just remind us in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who, who can understand it? And I, I'm not preaching at you. I'm telling you, I am a fellow struggler and trying to get this order right of waiting on the Lord and inquiring of the Lord. And David figured this out. Even from an early age, he figured out how to wait on the Lord, to trust him in his timing, to not be filled with anxiety that quickly makes you step out and move in a direction God isn't calling you to. And he also learned how at a very early age just to inquire of God. To not just go after a blessing, but to go after the very heart and intent of God. Because when you live in God's heart and intent, it allows God to say about you, He has my heart, and He will do everything I need Him to do. These are the two things that I think are the backbone of obedience. Not just checking off a list of God told me, I mean, but it's really, no, I can wait on God and I will inquire of God. And you can have this too. I'm not saying what will come easy or naturally or most instinctively. What I'm saying is, no, we can enter into disciplines that help train us to be the kind of people who are able to wait on the Lord and inquire of the Lord. Because I think we want to hear from him, they have my heart. And I know they'll do what I need them to do. Amen? Let's pray for that. Father, we just come to you and we recognize there's something in us that we don't even get or understand that seems to draw us away from you, that wants to do its own thing and go its own direction. And what I'm asking is that that spirit that is dwelling inside of us will give us a very loud and clear warning every time we step out in a direction you're not calling us to. That we'll get a, I mean, whether it's just a nudge, somebody makes a comment, something that in that moment will just kind of arrest our steps and our thinking to make us pause to say, whoa, first we need to go to God with this. And so we ask for forgiveness for those times, Lord, when we've done our own thing or even for those spaces that we know we're in open rebellion to and we want to come back and say we want to be able to trust you, to wait on you, and to inquire of you in all things because what we want is to be obedient. So give us the heart of your son, Jesus, who obeyed you in everything. This is what we ask for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.